Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth. And welcome to the ancient world. Episode 5 Blindsided. In our discussions leading up to the second millennium BC, we've seen some civilizations, like the Norte Chico and the Harappans, rise to great heights only to unravel almost completely. Other regions, like Egypt and the Near East, have experienced long stretches of cultural development punctuated by periods of extreme turbulence and change. But only one civilization, Minoan Crete, seems to have embarked on a relatively unbroken path to greatness. So why do those sound like famous last words? Crete in the second millennium BC was still moving from strength to strength, wealthy seafaring traders producing artwork of surpassing beauty. The first signs of trouble for Minoan civilization didn't appear on the horizon until 1700 BC. Around this time, there was a large disturbance on Crete. While we don't exactly know what caused it, an earthquake related to an eruption on the nearby island of Thera, an invasion from Anatolia, or possibly some type of internal warfare, the archaeological evidence shows that the Minoan palaces at Knossos, Phaistos, Malia, and Zakros were all destroyed. While this disaster, whatever it was, certainly rattled the Minoans, they seemed to have bounced back even stronger, embarking on an even more lavish period of palace construction and reconstruction known as the Neopalatial or New Palace period. The Palace of Knossos, in particular, underwent a massive expansion, spreading out over five acres and containing 1,500 rooms. The Minoan population also increased during this period, and many new settlements were founded all over Crete. In addition, the Minoan colony of Akrotiri on the island of Thera was rebuilt essentially from scratch, and decorated with lively frescoes, including the famous Boxing Twins, that are considered among the most beautiful the Minoans ever produced. The Neopalatial period also saw the growth of Minoan expertise in the new trade of sword-making. The introduction of bronze centuries earlier had allowed Minoan metalworkers for the first time to create items able to hold a cutting edge. In earlier ages, flint or obsidian were the only materials suitable for creating tools and weapons with cutting edges, including short daggers. 
However, stone was fragile and could not be used for weapons of any length. With the introduction of bronze, daggers could be made longer without becoming brittle, and would bend rather than break in combat. To prevent overbending, blades were shaped to get the maximum strength out of the material, while still affording balance and cutting thrusting ability. This led to early sword designs such as the leaf-bladed sword, with a thick but narrow blade near the hilt and a broad but thin blade near the tip. The cutting edge was frequently hardened by hammering to make it stronger. Such early bronze swords were two to three feet long, the maximum feasible length. Soon after these swords first appeared around the Black and Aegean Seas in the 17th century BC, Minoan craftsmen began to turn out items of exquisite manufacture, and in short order became known as the finest bronze sword makers of the Aegean. The Minoans likely used these swords for purely ceremonial or decorative purposes, but they also represent the early stages in the development of an edged weapon that would become central to the European warrior's arsenal over the next several thousand years. The Neopalatial period between 1700 and 1600 BC is considered the Minoan Golden Age of art, architecture, and influence. And then, as they say, tragedy struck. In 1600 BC, the massive volcano on the nearby island of Thera exploded. The eruption was among the largest in the history of civilization, ejecting approximately 60 cubic kilometers of material into the atmosphere. The eruption utterly devastated the island of Thera, including the Minoan colony of Akrotiri, which was completely entombed in a layer of pumice, making it essentially a Minoan Pompeii. One significant difference between the two buried sites is that at Akrotiri, there was apparently sufficient warning for the Minoans to flee to their ships before the disaster struck. For this reason, the ruins at Akrotiri do not include many human remains, as there were at Pompeii. The eruption had an absolutely debilitating effect on the Minoan culture of Crete. Early theories proposed that ash fall from Thera onto the eastern half of Crete choked off all plant life, causing starvation of the local population. However, recent examinations have determined that no more than a quarter inch of ash fell anywhere on the island. Instead, new studies point toward a massive tsunami generated by the Theran eruption that devastated the coastal areas of Crete and destroyed large numbers of Minoan settlements. This devastation also caused a major disruption of the Minoan trade and distribution networks, striking at the heart of their culture and livelihood. Evidence points to a decline in Minoan material wealth in the period following the eruption, as well as a decline in the importance of Knossos as a regional power center, both of which tend to corroborate a physical and cultural disaster of epic proportions. It has also been suggested that the eruption, and its effect on Minoan culture, was the origin of the Atlantis myth of Egyptian and later Greek accounts, which told of an ancient, advanced civilization that was violently laid low by an epic natural disaster and sank beneath the waves. At the very least, these accounts lend some sense of the scale of the disaster as perceived by later generations. So, you might be saying, hey, the Minoans are resilient, maybe they can bounce back from this, right? 
Well, maybe they could have, but unfortunately, they never really got the opportunity to try. While the Theron eruption did not cause the immediate downfall of the Minoans, it did help pave the way for a second, more fatal blow. In 1450 BC, the Mycenaeans, invaders from the Greek mainland, attacked a weak and vulnerable Crete. Archaeological evidence shows that many Cretan sites were destroyed by fire at this time, while the palace at Knossos appears to have been spared such destruction. Since natural disasters typically don't pick and choose their targets, it's most likely that this widespread destruction was a product of these warlike invaders, who probably recognized the usefulness of a ready-made palace complex like Knossos. Indeed, the Mycenaeans did end up occupying numerous Minoan palace sites and adapting them for their own uses. While the Mycenaeans would come to appreciate and transmit many aspects of Minoan culture down through their own civilization, their conquest of Crete effectively marks the end of the Minoan civilization, with all its unique vibrancy and remarkable characteristics. We're incredibly fortunate that so much of their amazing artwork has made its way down to us, enabling us to better envision the rich Aegean world in which the Minoans thrived. Now let's return to the Near East and discuss the aftermath of the fall of the Third Dynasty of Ur in 2004 BC. The two centuries after the collapse of Ur III were mainly dominated by conflict between Elam and the various Ur III successor kingdoms. The Amorites, who had slowly but surely infiltrated Mesopotamia over several generations, now held control over a number of prominent cities, including Isin and Larsa in the south and Babylon in the north. The regional culture remained Akkadian-Sumerian, with Nippur taking on status as a religious capital, and whichever ruler exerted temporary control over the city, claiming the old title of King of Sumer and Akkad. Dominant kings also continued to install their daughters as high priestesses at Ur. One relatively new civilization that came into play during this period was Assyria, not to be confused with Syria, which is the region to the west of Mesopotamia. A kingdom of Assyria first emerged in the early 24th century BC, centered on the city of Assur, or Asher, on the Tigris River in northern Mesopotamia. The city, which took the name of its patron god and passed the same name on to its people, benefited from its central role in a trade network exchanging tin from the Persian plateau, textiles from Mesopotamia, and silver and gold from Anatolia. Trade was a necessity for the Assyrians, who had poor soil and grazing lands, but needed a means to fortify their capital against other militant barbarian kingdoms to the north, including the Hittites to the northwest and the Hurrians to the northeast, both of whom we'll be discussing again shortly. Their proximity to these hostile tribes also served to invest Assyrian society with a strong degree of militarism an investment that would pay huge dividends in years to come. The first Assyrian kings were regional leaders only, subject to Sargon of Akkad. But after the fall of the old Akkadian Empire, and particularly after the fall of Ur III, Assyria made its play for a greater regional role. Around 1800 BC, Assyria, under the Amorite king Shamshi Adad, conquered all of Mesopotamia north of Babylon 
from Eshnuna on the foothills of the Zagros to the east, to Yom Kad on the Syrian steppe in the west. This series of conquests resulted in the founding of the old Assyrian Empire. There is evidence that Shamshi Adad exerted power over the south as well. The Babylonian king Hammurabi, whom we'll be discussing shortly, apparently ruled under Assyria's overarching authority. At around the same time, Larsa had begun to forge a southern Mesopotamian kingdom under its ruler Rim-Sin, who may have been of Elamite origin and enjoyed a long reign of 60 years. When Rimsin captured the city of Isin in 1793 BC, the 30th year of his rule, Larsa's only remaining rival was Babylon, which had forged a central Mesopotamian kingdom of its own. The following year, the sixth Amorite ruler of Babylon, Hammurabi, took the throne. Seeing himself hemmed in by the Assyrians to the north and Larsa to the south, he wisely decided to lay low and bide his time. Back up in the north, Shamshi Adad had based himself in the city of Shubat Enlil, in the center north of his new territorial holdings, and placed his two sons in other strategic locations. But delegating authority didn't mean he was going to be a hands-off ruler, as a letter to his presumably less favorite son, Yasma Adu, illustrates. How long do we have to guide you in every matter? Are you a child and not an adult? Don't you have a beard on your chin? When are you going to take charge of your house? Don't you see that your brother is leading vast armies? So you, too, take charge of your palace, your house. Geez, Dad, get off my back. Well, as it turned out, Shamshi Adad's concerns about his son's leadership abilities turned out to be pretty justified. When he died in 1776 BC, in battle or of natural causes is unknown, the territories of the old Assyrian Empire slipped away almost immediately, with Yasma Adu being kicked out of his base at Mari for good measure. Free of Assyrian domination, Mari would quickly emerge as a powerful northern kingdom in its own right, as would another local kingdom called Ishnuna. In short order, Assyria was reduced to the core region immediately surrounding the city of Ashur, still under the control of Shamshi Adad's eldest son, Ishmi Dagon. But don't worry, we haven't heard the last of the Assyrians, not by a long shot. The ten years after the fall of the old Assyrian Empire saw a hodgepodge of shifting alliances among the regional powers. Eshnuna attacked Mari, but then Mari made an alliance with Babylon and Larsa, along with Elam, to crush Eshnuna. Elam's subsequent attempt to play Babylon off against Larsa backfired, and the two kingdoms, along with Mari, combined their forces to crush Elamite power in 1764 BC. With Assyria and Elam removed as threats, Hammurabi decided that the time was ripe for Babylon to make its play for regional power. In 1763 BC, Hammurabi moved against his erstwhile ally Rimsin, now an old man, and conquered the southern cities of Isin, Uruk, and Larsa. Then, in 1761 BC, he led Babylon's armies north against another former ally, King Zimri Lim of Mari. Mari at the time was a wealthy and flourishing kingdom, an important trans-shipping point for tin from the Persian plateau on its way to the Mediterranean. Zimri Lim's palace of 300 rooms may have been the largest of the age, 
and Mari's voluminous diplomatic archives, rediscovered in the 20th century, are the source of much of our information about this turbulent period. Hammurabi defeated Zimri Lim, conquered Mari, and sometime later had the palace and city walls razed to the ground. Ironically, it was precisely this leveling and burial that preserved the archives for later recovery. Hammurabi then went on to impose vassal status on what remained of Assyria, appropriately ironic since early in his rule, Hammurabi had been vassal of the Assyrian king. Perhaps his most devastating military achievement during this northern campaign was his conquest of the city of Eshnunna, which he forced to surrender by diverting its water supply. By the end of this series of conquests, Hammurabi had created what is known as the Old Babylonian Empire, and the city of Babylon itself had been transformed into the power of central southern Mesopotamia, a position it would retain for the next 1500 years, long enough for the term Babylonia to become synonymous with Mesopotamia. Hammurabi was as effective a statesman as a military commander, giving the region a stability it hadn't known since the collapse of Ur three centuries before. During his rule, Babylon became the largest city in the world, and the first to reach a population over 200,000. Babylonian merchants, like their predecessors, operated throughout Mesopotamia, and also engaged in regular trade with the Amorite city-states of Syria and Canaan to the west. Perhaps Hammurabi's most important legacy was the compilation of a code of laws, one of the most complete to survive from the ancient world. The Code of Hammurabi is broken down into 282 sections, dealing with family, property, and commercial law, and with slavery, professional fees, prices, and wages. Among other fundamental legal principles, the Code allows for the presentation of evidence by both plaintiff and defendant, and the presumption of innocence for the accused. Laws were often enforced by leading figures in the community, with each offense receiving a specified punishment, often brutal in nature. A contemporary copy of the Code now sits in the Louvre in Paris. Modern scholars believe that it was not a code of law per se, but instead a monument presenting Hammurabi as an exemplary legal arbiter. Or, as he himself put it, May any wronged man who has a case come before my status as king of justice, and may he have my inscribed stele read aloud to him. May he hear my precious words, and may my stele clarify his case for him. May he examine his lawsuit, and may he calm his troubled heart. May he say, Hammurabi provided just ways for the land. Babylonian beliefs held that the king was agent of the city's god Marduk, and that Babylon was a holy city where any legitimate ruler of Mesopotamia had to be crowned. Babylonia adopted the written Semitic Akkadian language for official use and retained the Sumerian language, which was no longer widely spoken, for religious, ceremonial, literary, and scientific use. Akkadian and Sumerian traditions continued to play a major role in Babylonian society, and the region would remain an important cultural center down through the succeeding centuries. One local tradition, however, was impacted by the period of Amorite rule. The day of the Sumerian city-state was permanently over, and Mesopotamian territory, when not united, would from now on be divided into regional kingdoms. 
Amorite rule was also notable for ending the exclusive control over people, land, and livestock by the state, in other words, by kings and priests. The new monarchs gave, or let out for an indefinite period, numerous parcels of land, freed their subjects from taxes and forced labor, and seemed to have encouraged a new society to emerge, a society of big farmers, free citizens, and enterprising merchants. This privatization also had a downside, including a growing gap between rich and poor, and a degree of general public indebtedness that had to be addressed through frequent debt holidays, when all loans were considered null and void. In the long run, this wildly swinging business cycle benefited neither rich nor poor. In addition, with the shrinking of the centralized state came the neglect of critical urban infrastructure. People began to leave the cities for the countryside, and the urban population of Babylonia dropped to its lowest point in a thousand years. After Hammurabi's death in 1750 BC, his empire continued on under five successors, each reigning for over 20 years, and together keeping the territory more or less united for over 150 years, longer than the entire Ur III period. The end, when it finally came, came from completely out of left field, or, more accurately, out of far northwest field. In 1595 BC, Babylonia fell victim to an attack by fearsome invaders called the Hittites. Under their king Mursili I, the Hittites swept down into Mesopotamia riding in two-wheeled battle chariots that were far swifter and more maneuverable than the four-wheeled Mesopotamian war wagons. The Hittites were victorious in battle and sacked Babylon, overthrowing the last Amorite king Samsu-Ditana and putting an end to the old Babylonian empire. After plundering Babylon, and with no desire to occupy the territory, the victorious Hittites retreated with their booty to their rugged homeland in central Anatolia, leaving the region leaderless. So, hey Hittites, thanks for that. So now who's in charge? Well, we'll leave that story for a later podcast. And as for the Hittites, don't worry. We'll be getting to know them much better during our discussion of New Kingdom Egypt next episode. Speaking of, we last left Egypt in the relative chaos of the First Intermediate Period, which began with the collapse of the Old Kingdom around 2200 BC. The period finally came to an end with the reunification of Egypt and the foundation of the Middle Kingdom in 2022 BC. This reunification was accomplished by the fourth king of the 11th ruling dynasty, Mentuhotep II, whose power base was in Thebes. Mentuhotep's military prowess is testified to in his name, which translates as Montu is content, Montu being the Theban god of war. Or, put another way, war is my business, and business is good. Mentuhotep enjoyed a particularly long rule of 51 years. His reign began in 2060 BC, when he became king of the 11th dynasty of Thebes, which was still in conflict with the rival 10th dynasty based in Heracleopolis. In the 14th year of his reign, he took advantage of an uprising in Lower Egypt to send his armies north in a bid for conquest and, ultimately, Egyptian reunification. The process took 25 years, but in the end, his forces were victorious and the Middle Kingdom was established. Under Mentuhotep's centralized rule, 
Egypt again saw a return to peace and relative prosperity. One of his major initiatives was to rein in the power of local nomarchs, which he did by creating the new posts of Governor of Upper Egypt and Governor of Lower Egypt, to which they all now reported. So, lesson learned there at least. Mentuhotep also waged campaigns in both Nubia and Canaan, and completed building projects at various sites, mostly in Upper Egypt. The greatest of these was the large mortuary temple he erected on the west bank of the Nile at Thebes, in the impressive cliffs of Deir el-Bahari. This complex would provide the template and inspiration for the similar structure built nearby during the 18th dynasty under Queen Hatshepsut. His successors, Mentuhotep III and IV, sent additional expeditions abroad and also continued the tradition of monumental construction. Mentuhotep III, in particular, is noted for sending a large expedition to Punt, modern Somalia, for the first time since the Old Kingdom. Amenemet I, who was vizier to Mentuhotep IV, overthrew his former master and founded the 12th dynasty in 1991 BC. Amenemet was also from Thebes, and his 30-year rule continued the period of relative peace and prosperity. During his reign, military expeditions were undertaken against the Asiatics to the northeast, the Nubians of the south, and the Libyans of the west, and the worship of the god Amun began to supersede that of Montu in Thebes. He also established the tradition of co-regency when he invited his son Senusret I to rule alongside him in the 20th year of his reign, giving him primary responsibility for military matters. Senusret was off leading a campaign in Libya to capture slaves and cattle when the news reached him of his father's assassination by his own bodyguards, and he returned immediately to secure the throne. Senusret went on to rule for another 34 years, during which he expanded Egyptian domination further south from the first to the second cataract. He and his 12th dynasty successors maintained control of this region through a series of 13 forts between the two cataracts. These forts would remain unparalleled in their size and self-sufficiency until the great fortifications of medieval Europe were constructed some 3,000 years later. Senyusret also established diplomatic relations with local Amorite rulers in Syria and Canaan, and, for the first time, launched expeditions into the western desert oases. The 121-ton obelisk he raised in Heliopolis in 1931 BC, the 30th year of his reign, is the oldest still standing in Egypt. Following in his father's footsteps, Senyusret took his son, Amenemet II, as co-ruler about three years prior to his death. Amenemet matched his father with his subsequent rule of 34 years, during which he sent expeditions to the Red Sea and the land of Punt, and also exchanged diplomatic gifts with local rulers in the Levant. Egyptian burial hoards during this period also feature items of Minoan and Mesopotamian origin. Senyusret II and III followed in succession, the latter taking power in 1878 BC and ruling for 37 years. Senyusret III's portrait sculpture is among the most instantly recognizable of any Egyptian king. Seated or standing, Neme's headdress or white crown, he just looks totally beat, just exhausted. 
Part of this may have been due to a period artistic move away from the godlike complacency of earlier kingly depictions in favor of more realistic likenesses. Part of it may have also been calculated propaganda. The first intermediate period had done a lot to shake popular belief in the divine nature of kingship. Middle Kingdom rulers pivoted with this change and attempted to cultivate a new iconography of the king as good shepherd, taking on the heavy burden of protecting and caring for the people. Along these same lines, Egyptian rulers stopped placing emphasis on erecting large funerary monuments and devoted more resources toward more practical agricultural pursuits. As a side note, Middle Kingdom Egypt was also the period where advanced mummification techniques first came into wide use. In contrast to the splendid isolation of the Old Kingdom, Egypt's Middle Kingdom rulers had to deal with a far more complicated and threatening external environment. This included not only a more militant Nubia to the south, but also numerous small kingdoms that had formed along Egypt's borders with the Levant to the east. Senesret III initiated a series of devastating campaigns in both Canaan and Nubia, pushing Egypt's boundary further south than any of his forebears, and challenging his successors to maintain his new frontiers. I have made my boundary farther south than my father's. I have added to what was bequeathed me. As for any successor of mine who shall maintain this border which my majesty has made, he is my son born to my majesty. But he who abandons it, who fails to fight for it, he is not my son. He was not born to me. Senesret's actual son, Amenemet III, took power in 1860 BC and reigned for 45 years at the apogee of the economic growth of the Middle Kingdom. The agricultural potential of the Fayum, the quarries of Egypt, and the turquoise mines of Sinai were all exploited to maximum benefit under his rule. The last great ruler of the Middle Kingdom, his military and administrative skill is testified to on numerous monuments from Syria to the third, yep, third, cataract of the Nile. To cap his rule, he sought to repeat a feat not attempted since the Old Kingdom, erecting two pyramids for himself. Like several other pyramids constructed by Middle Kingdom rulers, their interior core was made of mud brick, which was then encased in limestone. Once the limestone was removed, the interior core soon became an eroded mass, and the remains of this kind of pyramid construction can be seen in various parts of Egypt. In 1814 BC, at the same time Shamshi Adad was forging the old Assyrian Empire and Rimsin was ruling in Larsa, Amenemet died and left the throne to his son Amenemet IV, who, since he left no male heir, was succeeded in turn by his, wait for it, sister Sobekneferu, the first known female ruler of Egypt. Upon her death with no heirs in 1802 BC, both the 12th dynasty and the Egyptian Middle Kingdom came to an end, and power passed to a much weaker 13th dynasty based in Lower Egypt. The period following the Middle Kingdom is called the Second Intermediate Period, and consists of the 13th through 17th ruling dynasties. In contrast to the first intermediate period, a complete breakdown of central authority did not occur. However, one notable development over the course of the 13th dynasty was that the Egyptian civil service began to slip out from under royal control, 
and strong viziers began to exercise powers previously reserved to the king. While inscriptions in Nilometers testify to the continuing strength of northern rule over the south, the 13th dynasty was apparently unable to keep Lower Egypt itself unified. A splinter 14th dynasty formed in the western Nile Delta, and, more ominously, a Semitic people known as the Hyksos took control in the city of Avaris in the eastern Nile Delta. The Hyksos, whose name translates to desert princes or foreign rulers, originated in the lands of Syria and Canaan, and their migration south into Egypt may have been in response to the actions of a northern tribe who we mentioned earlier, the Hurrians. With the collapse of the old Assyrian Empire in the 1770s BC, waves of Hurrian speakers entered northern Mesopotamia from the east. As with other Indo-Iranian tribes of this era, the Hurrians had a warrior culture, and may have been the first tribe to introduce the horse-driven chariot into the Near East. As the Hurrians migrated into territories west of the Euphrates, it's believed that they displaced local tribes, including the Hyksos, while at the same time giving these tribes training, well, inadvertent training, in their arts of war. Regardless of their origins, the Hyksos soon made their intentions clear. In 1720 BC, from their eastern delta stronghold of Avaris, the Hyksos launched a campaign for control of Lower Egypt. The two-wheeled chariots they rode into battle, along with the bronze, sickle-shaped swords and composite and recursive bows they used to deadly effect, were all technological innovations unknown to the Egyptians. With these military advantages, the Hyksos were able to sack the Egyptian capital of Memphis and take control of the country from the weak and divided 13th and 14th dynasties. The Hyksos chose not to occupy Memphis, but instead to exercise their control from Avaris through the puppet 15th and 16th native dynasties. Appearances aside, Egyptians were forced to confront an almost inconceivable truth. Egypt was under foreign rule for the first time in its history. Over the nearly 200 years they ruled over Egypt, the Hyksos came to adopt the worship of Seth, while also introducing other gods and goddesses from their Canaanite homelands, including the mother goddess Astarte and the storm and war god Reship. Excavations at Avaris also point to contact between the Hyksos and the Minoan civilizations. Despite their long rule, little other archaeological evidence exists from the Hyksos period, for the logical reason that once native rule was eventually restored, an effort was undertaken to expunge the bitter memory of this period from Egyptian history. There was one exception. The rulers of the New Kingdom would remember how the military advancements of the Hyksos had aided in their conquest, and would put these same tools to effective use in their own military campaigns. Meanwhile, at Thebes in the south, a new line of native Egyptian rulers, dubbed the 17th Dynasty, was exercising independent control over Upper Egypt, from Elephantine to Abydos, while also continuing to preserve the culture of the Middle Kingdom. In time, this line of rulers would come to challenge the authority of the Hyksos, and pave the way for one of the most important periods of Egyptian history. This next period would see the high watermark of Egyptian regional influence and cultural achievement, and feature more powerful and fascinating rulers than you can shake a stick at, 
including Hatshepsut, Tuthmosis III, Akhenaten, and Ramses II, as well as the world's most famous boy king, Tutankhamun. The Egyptian New Kingdom, next time on The Ancient World.